You're listening to the Gov Future Podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we speak with Adrian Elrod, Director of External and Government Affairs, CHIPS Program Office, to talk about the bipartisan CHIPS and Science Act signed into law by President Joe Biden in 2022. We discuss how a $50 billion of investment will be used to strengthen and revitalize the U.S. position in semiconductor research, development, and manufacturing. Adrian shares details about the CHIPS program and how it supports the development and manufacturing of chips in the U.S. and its impact on AI, cybersecurity, and quantum. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And thank you so much for listening. So many of you have been giving us some great feedback on the topics you've really enjoyed as we've been interviewing government innovator thought leaders across public sector, the federal, state, local, even international governments, folks covering all sorts of interesting and amazing innovative areas around AI, can't not talk about AI these days, analytics, big data, cloud, cybersecurity, IT modernization, all these topics, uh, a little bit of quantum even. And, you know, the reason why yes. so many of our government folks are, uh, you know, really pushing the boundaries when it comes to innovation. And really, this is what this podcast is all about. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, first of all, make sure to subscribe on your various channels. But also know that this is where we go to hear from uh, government leaders who are really adopting transformative technology. And here's some key conversations that will help you, our listeners, and our GovFuture forum and our GovFuture members learn the latest innovations and best practices to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with our GovFuture community, GovFuture is the fastest growing community of government innovators. I encourage you to go to GovFuture.com to learn more, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. But we love our podcast interviews because we're able to get such a broad range of guests on our show who can provide their various feedback and talk about different agencies and the wide breadth of information and all of the exciting stuff that is going on in the government. So we're so excited to have with us today, Adrian Elrod, who is the Director of External and Government Affairs at the CHIPS Program Office. Welcome, and we're so excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at CHIPS, and maybe also uh, explain what CHIPS is for folks that aren't familiar with it. Sure, absolutely. So I've been working in politics, uh, government, uh, working on the Hill, working at the the administration level um, for about 25 years. I've done three presidential campaigns. I spent about a decade on the Hill. Um, I had my own business in between Hillary Clinton's campaign and President Biden's campaign um, over the last few years, uh, where I did um, strategic communications and influencer engagement for a number of clients. Uh, I'm a former MSNBC analyst as well. So uh, as you can see, this is a slight deviation from what I have uh, traditionally done in the past uh, in terms of working for the CHIPS program office and running the external affairs um, arm of the office. But it's also not too dissimilar because, number one, um, passing the CHIPS and Science Act, the Bipartisan CHIPS and Science Act, is one of President Biden's biggest achievements. And in fact, I think when history, uh, when you look back 10, 15 years from now, 
history will show that this is probably the most impactful piece of legislation that President Biden was able to achieve. Because as you sort of noted a little bit at the beginning, uh, we really are looking to uh, reimagine what the chips industry looks like here in the United States. We're looking to really bring back some of these jobs that manufacturing jobs that were once um, here in the United States, but have been shipped over seas for a variety of reasons. Uh, we want to onshore those jobs back here, and we want to create um, some of those really highly sophisticated, leading-edge, and mature-node chips here on U.S. soil. Um, I want to get into a little bit about also why this is so important, which also sort of portends to what is a chip. Uh, first of all, anything that has an on-off switch is probably the easiest way to determine whether or not that or that device has a chip in it. So everything from your washing machine, your dishwasher, uh, your your vehicle, your electric vehicle in particular, if you have one, uh, you know, military equipment, obviously iPhones, smartphones, computers, iPads, et cetera. Um, almost everything that you look at, this, this camera that I'm looking into right now, uh, talking to you has, has a chip or has quite a few chips in it. So um, as we are revolutionary, re revolutionizing, um, you know, electronics here in this country and just, you know, equipment in general. Uh, so are we revolutionizing chips? And constantly this this industry is evolving. Um, it's becoming more and more sophisticated. There's a lot of competition, especially at the leading edge level of chips. Um, and right now in the United States, we are too reliant on East Asia for the chips that we use here in our everyday lives. Uh, these are in jets. These are, um, you know, again, in the vehicles, the lights that we have in our office, um, everything has a chip in it. For perspective, and I think this is really important to your audience, in 1990, the United States made 37% of the world's chips. So we actually designed those chips and we made them, we manufactured them here in the United States. Today, that number is, has gone down to 12%. And we learned the hard way during the pandemic. Uh, that failing to make chips in America puts our nation at risk. Uh, global shortages of semiconductors have resulted in higher prices for Americans. Uh, so, so to us, it's extremely important that we, when we are looking at the $50 billion that's been appropriated here uh, for the chips program office to, to um, execute on and, and to, um, to, to give out to, to, to applicants, we want to make sure that first and foremost, we are doing this uh, through the lens of strengthening our, our national and economic security. So in February, we launched our first notice of funding opportunity. This is for leading edge and mature node companies. Along with that, we also issued a vision paper where we sort of laid out four strategic objectives that we aim to reach by the end of this decade. And again, this is really important because when we are looking how to strategically deploy, deploy these funds, we want to make sure that we actually are doing this um, in, the, in the vein of achieving several goals. And those goals are number one, that we have two large scale leading edge clusters at logic, at leading edge and logic fab clusters here in the United States. Number two, that we make the US home to multiple high volume advanced packaging facilities. Number three, that we produce high volume leading edge memory chips on economically competitive terms. Uh, and number four, that we increase production capacity for current generation of mature node chips. Um, right now, the percentage, you know, I talked about the fact that we went from 37% to 12% in terms of making the world's chips. Of that amount, the percentage of leading edge chips, the ones that do go in the iPhones, the ones that are in your computers, the ones that truly drive innovation uh, globally, 
the United States makes 0% of those chips. Now, we design a lot of those chips here, but we don't actually manufacture them. So we have a lot of goals. We have a lot of really important strategic imperatives here on the chips team. But the biggest thing to really think about when it comes to what a chip is and its importance to our everyday life is that we want to make sure that we are onshoring not a significant majority, but enough of a majority of the manufacturing here in the United States so that we can rely on the chips that we need um, here on U.S. soil to, to be made on, the UN, on U.S. soil. Yeah, that's incredibly important. I mean, we all know we're in the digital economy. That you can't run daily lives without semiconductors and all of its forms, right? And it's actually interesting. Now, chips is all caps. Does it actually? Does it have an acronym? Does it stand for anything? I know it's also out of the the NIST office. So some of our listeners may or may not be familiar with with all the different components and aspects of our of the government that we're in. So maybe you can talk a little bit about like what the chips maybe maybe program stands for, and maybe why it's run out of uh, NIST or, or the Department of Commerce. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And I know I have some follow on questions for you on that as well. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a part. It's housed here at NIST in the Department of Commerce because the primary jurisdiction over the program, um, in fact, the entire jurisdiction of the program, including the budget, is here at the Department of Commerce. You may know this, but um, the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, the implement implementation of the um, the uh, the infrastructure bill that Congress passed early, or last year. Um, those efforts are housed out of the White House because there's so much coordination among multiple agencies. So those entities are housed out of the White House. Um, almost all the jurisdiction that um, we oversee here at the CHIPS Program Office is housed at the Department of Commerce. And President Biden will be the first to say that Secretary Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, was very instrumental in getting this legislation passed. Because again, as you may recall, uh, the White House was very focused on making sure that the Inflation Reduction Act got passed uh, Secretary Raimondo, in conjunction with the White House, was making sure, solely making sure that chips passed. Um, she saw this as a once uh, in a generation opportunity, opportunity to really revolutionize this industry. So uh, we are housed here at the Department of Commerce. And, you know, sometimes people ask, what's the difference between a chip and a semiconductor? So the chip is the actual, you know, small little entity. You can see it. I have an American Express card. Uh, that has like a little chip on it that you can see on the front. I mean, most credit cards, especially those that you can just sort of lay on the machine, have a chip that you can see outwardly on there. So this actually like the 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 wafer that is is called the chip. And then the semiconductor is all the other components that go into it. Something that I also learned in this job, which I think is very interesting and also really highlights the inefficiencies of manufacturing a chip right now, especially for those that we need here in the United States, is oftentimes a chip will travel to multiple countries uh, before it actually becomes a full-fledged functioning semiconductor. So again, this is simply highlighting the fact that we need to manufacture more of these chips here in the United States. Um, and with these two ecosystems, these two clusters that I mentioned earlier, that will be a minimum goal coming out of uh, the, the funds that we'll, we'll be dispersing through the CHIPS program office we want to make sure that when we are thinking through these leading edge clusters, that we actually can create uh, a semiconductor from start to finish uh, within a 30 mile radius, roughly, of that area. So, like, you know, the advanced packaging is very important here because we want to make sure that the chip doesn't have to travel to other countries. The chip doesn't even have to travel uh, to multiple states here in the United States to actually become uh, a semiconductor. So, again, these are very important things that we're looking at. Um, and this it goes down 
through the lens of national and economic security. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks for that, uh, you know, explanation there. So the next question is, how is the CHIPS program working to ensure the resilience and security of the domestic semiconductor supply chain? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, what is it, how it moves around, but maybe more specifically, uh, you know, talk about security. And I assume you mean security in terms of our national security being a priority for us? Yeah. And also, you know, how are you working to just ensure resilience as well in this Mm -hmm. domestic semiconductor supply chain and what's needed? And, you know, how are you working to, to make that happen? How is the CHIPS program working to make that happen? Well, I think to to really, you know, get into this, we have to go back to what we mentioned earlier, which is the pandemic. I think every American can understand, even if you don't know a lot about what semiconductors do. And, you know, it feels like a very complicated industry, even though it's in many ways not. um, You have to really look back at the pandemic and the fact that we had so many supply chain disruptions. I mean, people couldn't buy a car. Um, you know, I joke to a lot of my friends, don't drop your iPhone in water or smartphone in water, because who knows how long it may take, depending on um, what happened with supply chains uh, to get a new phone. Fortunately, we didn't see a lot of disruptions there. We certainly saw it when it came to kitchen appliances, when it came to vehicles, when it came to so many um, things that have an on and off switch in our everyday life. So part of our goal here is to make sure that we really strengthen supply chain resilience. And that means that making that making sure that supply chains are there when we need them and that they're resilient and that no other nation can can use supply chains against us, which is critically important. It also means we must stop being so reliant on other countries for the essential components and materials, which I got into earlier. Um, in terms of the chips investments relating to inflation, again, I think this is also something that's very important when it comes to the overall resilience. Um, the Chips for America program is intended to spur our medium and long-term manufacturing here in the United States, which, of course, will only drive down inflation costs and will only help strengthen supply chain resilience here at home. Um, we know that many of the supply chain issues we saw during COVID were directly tied to the fact that we were seeing bottlenecks in other countries because the semiconductor industry in, in the United States right now is so reliant on other supply chains in other countries. Um, you know, for example... A COVID shutdown in Malaysia could shutter a car manufacturing plant in Michigan. Um, At the same time, shipping costs were through the roof, and we brought those down considerably. Um, And we again, we we look at this through the lens of investing in America. Um, I will say that since President Biden has taken office, there's been $400 billion in private sector commitments uh, in terms of capital investments here in the United States. $200 $200 billion of that over 400 is in the semiconductor industry. So we see this as investing in America, manufacturing again, and we can rebuild our supply chains so that they are more resilient and less concentrated in countries halfway around the world. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And we all felt those supply chain shocks, you know, across the whole board, things you would never even expect from uh, lumber to uh, baby formula to all sorts of things that you would never would have been thought to have been impacted by issues across the board, whether it's pandemic, labor issues, uh, you know, factory shortages, closes, and of course, geopolitical problems. 
Tell me that anybody could have forecasted the the decade of the 2020s. Now would have been like, <laughs> what's next? I won't even ask because uh, yeah, don't, don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. Don't ask. To your point, we are trying to mitigate that from ever happening again because we don't want to rely on other countries uh, for for our supply chain production, especially when it comes to something that is so critically important in our everyday devices that we use. Uh, you know, in our everyday lives. So supply chain resilience is one of our top priorities here. Of course, given that Silicon Valley itself is a physical place that's on the West Coast of the United States, you would think that being top of mind is something very important to us here. So let me ask you a little bit, how do you see the CHIPS program impacting sort of these other major technology initiatives and trends, especially within both the public and private sector? So we talked about AI and analytics and cybersecurity and quantum. How do you sort of see the interplay between the things you were doing there and perhaps what's happening in some of these other uh, technology areas? Absolutely. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I want to start off by saying it's never been more important um, and more expensive to bring chips, the chips market to America, sometimes costing as much as half a billion dollars. Funding and technology hardware makes up only 3% of America's venture capital, which is down 20% from 2005. So we see the investments for the Chips and Science Act as um, really helping to turn this trend. And we are starting to see that happen already. We've heard from a number of uh, investors and a number of um, uh, venture capital funds that, that because of the passage of the bipartisan, by the way, which I think is really important to highlight that this was uh, done with both Democrats and Republicans, the Bipartisan Chips and Science Act really made a strong commitment um, from Congress, from the government uh, to investors that the semiconductor industry is going to only continue to grow here in the United States. And it's a good place to invest your money. Um, we'll make it easier for new and disrupted entrants to get into the market. We want to make sure that R&D assets are more accessible for innovators to develop and test their ideas. Um, and we'll make sure that hardware innovation is, is as attractive to VCs, venture capital funds, as software investment. And that's very important to us, again, because when we are looking at dispersing this $50 billion, we've made it very clear that these funds will not replace private capital. These funds are only intended to spur private capital. So you know, if you're an applicant coming forward and saying, I have this really great idea for a startup, um, I need to fully fund it with CHIPS funds. And we've made it very clear that that is not possible. But if you're an applicant that says they can prove, you know, vis-a-vis -vis a, a commercial transaction, a, a term sheet with um, with our investments team, which is overseeing the, the process for awarding the funds here on the, at the CHIPS program office, um, if you can prove that perhaps an investment from uh, the CHIPS program could maybe, you know, double the size of your project or could, you know, uh, you know, you could have a 20 to 30 percent, uh, you know, greater manufacturing capacity with funds. That's the kind of investment that we are looking for. So an entity that's well on its way that just needs a little bit of help to like get over the finish line to perhaps double or or increase their capacity. Um, and this is why the Biden-Harris administration, through the Investing in America agenda, is pursuing a modern, industrial, and innovative strategy to invest in our sources of strength here at home, um, which also powers our strength around the world. We also realize that we are not trying to manufacture all the chips that we need here in the United States. Uh, we certainly want to increase our manufacturing capacity and capabilities here, but we know that this is a interdependent industry, that we need to make sure that countries that we have good standing relationships with are also able to continue to 
produce chips at the robust level that they are. This is a global industry. Uh, we are mutually reliant on our partners. Um, we simply want to make sure that we can produce more of those really important leading edge and mature node chips here in the United States on U.S. soil. Yeah, you said some really interesting stuff, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. You talked about, you know, investment and what's expected so that this isn't supposed to be fully starting, you know, uh, isn't like for startups that need uh, investment and are only going for this. But So what's the sweet spot? Maybe in both terms of investment size and as well as the type of companies that are getting investment. Um, well, the first note is the funding opportunity that we opened up is for leading edge and mature node companies. So the leading edge companies are the ones that produce, you know, the most sophisticated chips. So Samsung is, is an example of an entity that produces leading edge chips. Intel, uh, you know, Micron produces memory chips. Those are all highly sophisticated chips. So they were available for that first notice of funding opportunity. Um, we just amended our first notice of funding opportunity to make sure that suppliers um, that are seeking that are that are producing projects over 300 million can also apply for some of these funds. Uh, we'll be releasing another notice of funding opportunity later this year that is for smaller suppliers. So think some of the like you know small entities that produce a very specific part of a chip, um, but they're that are not a fully fledged company that that produces you know at the high capacity that like that some of these leading edge companies like Intel and and, and Samsung produce. Uh, TSMC, of course, as well. Um, but I think something else that I really like to touch on is we are making sure, not just making sure, but we are requiring that if you are applying for funds, you have to show that you have uh, support at the local level. We make we are making sure that um, you have a partnership with state and local leaders. It doesn't even necessarily have to mean elected officials, but we want to make sure that local workforce entities are supportive of your project. Uh, that you have a real workforce plan in place. Um, you may recall that when we announced our first funding opportunity in February, we also made it clear that any applicant seeking funds over $150 million had to have some sort of childcare plan presented in their application. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to provide on-site childcare, although a lot of leading edge companies are already doing this, um, but it means that you have to sort of sort of think through, okay, we're in a tight labor market. Some, you know, some parts of the country it's under three percent, which is extraordinary. Other parts of the country maybe in the, you know, three point two to three point five percent. But the bottom line is, we are not dealing with a five, six, seven percent unemployment uh, rate here in the United States. We are dealing with a tight labor market, which means that we are going to invest taxpayer dollars in some of these large scale fabs to produce, you know, leading edge chips to produce those highly sophisticated chips that we need here. We have to make sure that we are filling those jobs and we are able to fill the jobs in those fabs. And the way to do that is to make sure that every barrier that exists to keep people out of the workforce or that keeps people out of the workforce is broken down to the extent that it possibly can so that you can get more people back into the workforce, which childcare, not surprisingly, is one of the greatest barriers to prohibiting people from getting back into the workforce. So we're simply saying to applicants, Put together a plan. Show us your workforce plan. How are you going to train the workers uh, to take some of these technical jobs? How are you going to make sure that those workers can actually get to work? Because a lot of them don't have access to quality childcare. Um, so we are working with local partners, and we are encouraging applicants to really assess the needs in their in their community where they are investing in these projects, and determine what they can put together 
with workforce entities on the ground to make sure that they can actually fill these jobs and uh, we can get these fabs up and running as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's great to hear. I think, you know, so much goes into this and I like that you you make sure you touch upon all different aspects of it because just getting a job is one thing, but really looking at that holistic picture is quite another. I know we could go on for a very long time about this, but I need to be respectful of time here, make sure that we can get to our last question. We always like to end our podcasts with the same question because everybody is able to bring their own unique perspective, maybe from you know previous experience, what they're doing right now, and have provided you know varying responses, all of which we love to hear. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? Well, I think what you're seeing here with the CHIPS program office is something that government has truly never done before. We are leveraging uh, government resources in a way that we never have. You know, the CHIPS program office is not simply a grant office. We will be giving out some direct funds to the applicants, but a lot of what our team here is doing is they are structuring deals, much like a, a venture capital fund would would uh, would invest in in in, in assembled deals for uh, prospective um, entities and companies that they're investing in. That's the way that we're approaching this. We made it very clear that if you know, we invest X amount amount of dollars in a, in an apple in a, in, a, in a company, and that company is able to uh, quadruple or really you know maximize those funds and make a giant profit profit off of those funds. We are you know clawing back some of those funds so that we are being again good stewards of taxpayer dollars. But I think it's somebody sort of taking a step back, somebody who's been working in, in and out of government government for the past twenty five years. Um, I see this as such a big moment in America's industrial policy, the fact that we are uh, not only going to sort of turn the tide on the semiconductor industry here in the United States uh, toward our favor, but we are also going to create a lot of jobs that don't require four-year degrees. Um, I think that's so important because, you know, we know that the college costs are skyrocketing. It's getting more and more difficult for students to, um, to get into colleges. Uh, there's so many factors that come into play here. And the fact that a lot of these fabs, once they're up to scale and they're built, you can graduate from high school with a little bit of technical training, start working at a fab at perhaps $40,000. And you can only go up from there. There's a lot of upward mobility. And I think given the fact that we've lost so many manufacturing jobs here in the United States to innovation, to AI, uh, to a number of different factors, this truly in the next 10 years you're going to see a totally different industrial landscape here in the U.S. And it's just extremely ex exciting to be on the precipice of that and to be a part of the team that's this reimagining this and is sort of using government levers in a very creative way to turn that tide. Yeah, well, I think so. Well, we this has been a fantastic interview. As mentioned, I know we can go on for a while. And for those of you that may be in the D.C. region, you may be available to uh, attend one of our Gov Future Forum events you might be able to see and interact with folks like Adrian at one of these upcoming uh, events, or maybe watch it on a replay if you're listening to this maybe many months from now. But uh, I wanted to really thank you, Adrian, so much for providing your insightful feedback and thoughts. This is a unique topic. We very rarely get to talk about, we talk about how we make the technology work. We talk about using all this technology, but we very rarely talk about 
making it. And of course, the core to using it is to have the technology available because you can't make good use of technology you don't have. So I really want to thank you so much for providing insights and some of this direction uh, that things are going in the administration. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this and um, I really appreciate the, the chance to talk to both of you. Yeah, we had a great time on the podcast. We've got some great resources if you're looking to get more insight and detail on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics. Check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources. I will link to that in the show notes as well because it really is tailored just for you, our GovFuture listeners. Become a GovFuture member to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, various opportunities to collaborate with different agencies, and have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. You can go to govfuture.com slash join to learn more. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.